0: If you have a Bible, I encourage you to find Acts chapter 4. Our passage of Scripture that the sermon this morning is focused on is Acts chapter 4 that Michelle just read to us. Now, to get to the heart of what's going on here, we need to back up. We need to get the big picture. The book of Acts records what took place right after Jesus' death. So Jesus, he spent three years preaching about one thing. All four of the accounts of his life bear witness to this, that he had a single message, and his message was the kingdom of God, that God's kingdom was finally coming On earth, that God's will was finally being done here on earth the way it's perfectly carried out in heaven. And not, Jesus didn't just preach this message, over and over he enacted it. Wherever he went, he would show people what it looked like when the Creator of all things, what it looked like when the Creator took hold of the world in a fresh, and kind, and just, and beautiful way. So, read the Gospels, and you see the message of Jesus is about the kingdom of God coming to earth, and you see Jesus showing us what life is like when this happens. Here's a leper who gets healed. And then there's a crippled woman, and in and, and her Her disease that has crippled her and ostracized her from the community is taken away. She's healed, and she's restored to her family, to her community. There's a person in the grip of dehumanizing habits set free. The kingdom of God, it's about the will of God being done here on earth, the will of the creator, the same creator who out of sheer extravagant generosity created the Redwood Forest the Rocky Mountains, the vast oceans. So you extrapolate from that. If that is the creator, then what would it be like when he shows up and then you read the Gospels and you see what it's like when such a life-giving, generous, creative, overwhelmingly extravagant creator takes on flesh and begins to fix things, restore things. The kingdom of God, it's about the will of the creator, the life-giving creator, the stunningly generous creator who is the source of all delight, of all that's lovely, of all that's lively. When this God, who is filled utterly with love, just love to the core of his being, grace this God when he shows up to bring things into his will. You read the Gospels and you you can begin to see with a hopeful imagination what the kingdom of God is like. What it's like to live a life under the reign of this kind of ruler who doesn't bully you, doesn't make you cringe, he doesn't diminish you, he maximizes you. No, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of a particular God, this God, the genuine, generous God has come to fill his creation. The kingdom of this God is filled with love and with life and with freedom and joy. And then after proclaiming this message for three years, the powers of the world say, no, nah, we're fed up with that because it's a threat to their position. It's a threat to their vested interest. And so they do what power does in our world. They struck out. They struck at him. They crucified him. They rejected his claim. They rejected his agenda, his message. But then, in a surprise move that caught everybody off guard, God rejected their rejection. Their rejection in the form of death, which is the way this world functions, right? God said, no. Sorry, I trump death. And he raised Jesus from the dead. And then in Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends to heaven and is enthroned as the king of the world. And in chapter 2, he pours out his spirit on his followers and he says, Now you go, you carry out this message. You carry it forward that I've been proclaiming. You carry on the work I've begun. And immediately as we're reading in Acts, that's what happens. The kingdom moves forward. So the king goes up. The spirit comes down. The kingdom moves forward as the church begins to say the stuff Jesus had been saying. There is a king. There is a kingdom. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is available. And it's beautiful when you read the first three chapters of Acts. It's just Seductive. It's like it's idyllic. It's God's kingdom because you look at these people, and there's people whose sins are forgiven and their guilt is taken away and the stain of their mistakes is cleansed. And you know what happens when people are delivered from shame? They start to forgive each other. Suddenly, this stuff they're drawing down, they're drawing down on the kingdom, they're drawing down on this life-giving power, and it changes them so that when you look at the life of this community, they're nice, they're kind. They love each other more than they love their stuff. So somebody in the community has a catastrophic financial need. They'll sell stuff because they love the person. Y'all see my note coming out of my bucket? The descriptions in the book of Acts of, of the church, you need to think of them as descriptions of what a human can be when a human is really human. When a human created by a creator opens their heart to a creator and that creator's power begins to enable that human to do what a human was really made to do. They're not only devoted to the creator, they're devoted to caring for each other, to taking care of each other. And they tell other people about this new possibility, this new way of living. And like Jesus did, they, don't, they not only talk about it, they enact the kingdom. So you get to chapter 3 in the book of Acts, and this new power, this new life, this life-giving power that pulsates from Jesus, it flows out through his church, and it washes over one particular man, a 40-year-old man who has been dead his whole life, right? He's been lying on a mat. He's been laying down. And what happens when the kingdom washes over this man? In Acts chapter 3. Listen to these words in Acts 3 verse 6. But Peter said to this man, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. What's the, what's the key word? Rise. And walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him And his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping he stood, and he began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. This word, rise, raise up, forever after the end of the Gospels. That is not a free word, right? From the moment God trumped death by raising Jesus from the dead, when his followers start using this word, it is freighted with all of the kingdom behind it. See, the new creation power that raised Jesus from the dead, it overflowed from Jesus into his church. It washes over this man, and this man has a sort of resurrection. His broken body is healed. Holy cow! Theological speak. Isn't this idyllic? Isn't this beautiful? Isn't this the stuff of our deepest longings, of our myths, of our greatest stories? Isn't this the life we all want? Isn't this the way we want our communities to function? Isn't this a picture that rings true to the primal collective instinct of the way we all want this world to be? So why then, in our reading this morning, when you get to Acts chapter 4, Are people angry? What does it take to get mad about this? I mean, I think that's what, look, you know, in a monomythic plot cycle, like in a five-act play, in in act one, life as it should be, in act two, conflict occurs. Act four is conflict. Act one, two, and three, life as it should be. Where is this conflict coming from? Who could get mad about this? I just don't want people being healed. I mean, like, really? Really? like, where is this coming? what why suddenly, in this amazing description of the kingdom moving forward, why suddenly does this storm blow in? And it's a serious storm. It is so ferocious that the kingdom's very existence is threatened. What gives? Where is all this anger? Look at. Luke, uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. That's the answer. They were annoyed, greatly, uh, you could translate this word, greatly disturbed or worn out, unable to put up with it any longer. Why? It says right there at the end of verse 2, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That's what ticked them off. That's where all the anger and hostility came from. That's kind of weird, isn't it? Like, I read that and I think, I I, I still don't quite get it. Why would that tick you off? Like, why why didn't they just do like a lot of culture despisers do today? Why didn't they just ignore that? Right? Right? Why did it actually provoke what's so provocative about it? Well, to understand this, it helps to know two things. Who these people are that are getting all wound up and angry, and what this idea, this notion, the resurrection of the dead, what that meant in that particular context. First of all, these people that are getting upset, these leaders, look, it says priest, the captain of the temple, And the Sadducees, these are the aristocrats. This is the landed gentry in that culture. They are powerful. They are wealthy. They are not just aristocrats with money. They are the ruling party. Their power comes from the fact that they are the keepers of the temple. The, the temple, the central shrine of this nation. They're in charge of it. The most holy place in the life of the Jewish people. I mean, just try to imagine what it means to control the Temple Mount in a religious culture. It doesn't take much imagination to stretch, to see how that can generate power. They were in charge of this place. This place that for a thousand years... The one true God had promised to meet his people at this place, and on this place, in this temple, he would restore fellowship with his people. And in a deeply, fundamentally, essentially religious culture, that meant, of course, not only did they have the lion's share of religious power, but they also dominated the economic and social and political power Of that nation. That's who gets mad. This is the group of people. That when Rome who occupied this territory. At this particular point in time. This is the group of people with whom Rome was interacting. So why would proclaiming in Jesus. The resurrection of the dead. Bother them. It's because. And here you have to invert your common Western view. In that culture, resurrection meant revolution. In our culture, people who believe in the resurrection of Jesus are often considered conservative, medieval, superstitious. But in that culture, it wasn't that you were backward if you believed in it. It's that you were on the liberal edge, the progressive edge of society. And this was a threat. Resurrection was a radical, dangerous doctrine. It was an attack on the status quo. It was a threat to the existing power structures. Resurrection, you see, is the belief, and this is the key, it is the belief that declares that the living God is going to fix everything and the current way of things is wrong. Do you see how that would be a threat? The one true living God, the creator of all things, is going to restore all things. He's going to turn an upside down world right side up. Well, if you're in charge of an upside down world, suddenly what would happen to you when that upside down world is turned right side up? You would find yourself in the place you don't want to be, which is on the bottom, and you're accustomed to being on the top. This is why the people who are in power are so worked up because of the political edge of resurrection. Because resurrection isn't merely about morality, it's about every square inch. It's about everything. You see, if resurrection was like the secularists of today say, if it was only about your own personal spiritual experience or your only morality, it in no way would have bothered the religious rulers, the political leaders. It it would have been no threat. They would have done what a lot of today's secular world does to the church. They would have happily ignored them. But they and everybody else knew that this doctrine of the resurrection was about revolution. It was about the fact that we live in a broken place and God has started the renewal of it. So if suddenly God shows up and he restores all things, he sets it all right, the powers that be who are used to control, they no longer have a guarantee for their vested interest. So these rulers, who are so preoccupied with power and reputation. That's what ticks them off. And this guy, Peter, where does he get this from? You know, he just keeps standing up. And in chapter 2, in chapter 3, in chapter 4, he says the same thing over and over. You killed him, God raised him, repent. Repent. This is not the way powerful people are accustomed to being talked to. In other words, Peter was not only saying that Jesus himself has been raised, but he was saying that Jesus' resurrection is the start, the sign of God's eventual restoration of all things. And you better get on the right side of history is what he's basically saying. And the only right side of history is with Jesus. That the turning point of history is not the Enlightenment. It's not the Bill of Rights. It's not America's birth. It's not our Constitution. The turning point of history was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and the only right side of history is to stand with that. That's the reason for their opposition and and the tension, and it is tense. This is a tense moment because these rulers, this is the same court that tried and condemned Jesus. You read Luke's account of the life of Jesus. There's Annas and there's Caiaphas. There's the Sadducees. Now think about this. When we read in Acts chapter 4, verse 6, On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power? Or by what name did you do this? Can you see Peter and John standing there? What have they been thinking about all night as they sat in jail? Their minds have been flooded with memories of Jesus' trial. Was history about to repeat itself? (laughs) Could they expect justice from this court? Hardly. This court, which already had listened to false witnesses and unjustly condemned their Lord, were they about to suffer the same fate? Probably. Would they be handed over to the Romans and crucified? Most likely. Surely they were asking themselves these questions. Can you imagine? And and, and it is in the midst of them, the way this court physically sat was um, in the half round, and the person on trial would stand right in the middle of all the power of life and death. So what do they do? On the edge of their own crucifixions, how do they respond to this incredibly threatening, dangerous moment? Look at verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Look, you don't say to the owners of the temple, there's a new cornerstone for a new temple. Right? When Jesus started messing with the temple, they killed him. They say it. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Holy cow! Is that what you would have said? I mean, do you get the feeling that they sat there that night fretting? Peter boldly restates the claim that got him there, the claim that led to Jesus' crucifixion. It's a mantra he keeps saying over and over. He keeps saying that when God raised Jesus from the dead, he began the process of renewal and restoration that will culminate in a transformed creation in the world right side up again, and that will culminate in all of those who have gotten on the right side of history, getting to live in that kingdom, world without end. You see, Peter says, hey, powerful people, what happened to this crippled man? That was just a foretaste. That was an anticipation of what God is going to do with every twisted, broken, painful, diseased, marginalized, powerless situation in person. Peter says, Jesus is the inescapable doorway to your deepest, truest, kindest, most generous dreams. Jesus. And it's actually necessary to call upon his name it's necessary to repent of all of the twisted areas of your life and to put your faith in Jesus. If you want to benefit from a world, turned right side up again. <laughs> Can you see Peter there saying that? Do, do any of you know the story of Peter at the end of the Gospels? Do you know what a, what a cowardly chump he was? Right? The last time we saw Peter put on the spot, it wasn't by power. It was by a little slave girl. Aren't you one of them? No. And then he starts using those weird character symbols that you text, you know. But here Peter, here he is. And he fully accepts the cost. I think Peter thinks he's probably about to be crucified. And I think he just embraces that reality. Those of you who are on the retreat, I said this because Jesus told him, you'll be my witnesses. And the fundamental meaning of the word witness in the book of Acts is that your life will look like my life in its cruciform shape. So Peter says, well, my Lord did. And that's the way God moved the kingdom forward. And now he's going to move it forward through me. And he moves it forward this way. So here is Peter. He accepts the call. He embraces the reality that there's a very good chance he's about to be crucified. And he says, all you guys need to do is to trust in the name of Jesus and your sins will be forgiven. All you need to do is receive the new life of the Holy Spirit and you'll enjoy life in this world when it's turned right side up. And what's the verdict of the court this time? Well, the masses are on Peter's side. So like people who worship power, they stick with power. They're in a rather embarrassing situation, their own prejudice. And and this is an enormous contrast to Peter. Their insatiable desire for self-protection prevents them from killing Peter. But more importantly, their prejudice and their desire for self-protection prevent them from objectively evaluating the evidence in front of them. The authorities just aren't convinced that they had a need to acknowledge Jesus as the one responsible for this healing, and they are certainly not ready to call upon his name for salvation, unfortunately, Prejudice then and prejudice today can blind us to objective truth staring us in the face. So they reject the mind-boggling opportunity to enter into the kingdom. I mean, right? Whether you believe this or not, just read it as literature. Don't you think they're idiots? Look what they were being offered. And look what they do. They do. I mean, they could be getting forgiveness. They could be getting healing. They could be getting joy. They could be treated. You know, have you ever seen a person who lusts for power get an opportunity to exist in a context where power is used rightly and well and generously? Their main concern is, look what it says in verse 17, in order that it may spread no further among the people. That's their concern. They don't want this right-side-up business spreading. they got to put a stop to that. So in verse 21, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all, we're praising God for what happened. And what do the threatened apostles do with this? They do three things. If you're a note-taker and you're frustrated because I haven't given you any points, here's three quick points. You can kind of relax. They immerse themselves in the church. They immerse themselves in Scripture, and they pray. That's their response. And what a prayer. I mean, think about the first half of chapter 4, you see their boldness in court. And then in the second half, you see their boldness in prayer. What a remarkable prayer. After meditating on Scripture, they locate themselves within the larger story of Scripture, then they ask God for help. And did you notice what their ask for help was? Is this what you would pray if your life was threatened? They don't demand vengeance or destruction. Where did they learn to pray for their enemies not to experience vengeance and destruction? Where did they learn to do this? In the face of a powerful threat to your own body, where did they learn to pray kindly? From Jesus. They don't ask for destruction. They ask for mercy. They don't pray, Lord, take out our enemies, remove the barrier, eliminate the threat. No, they don't even pray, Lord, please make them stop being mean. What a cool group of people. Who wouldn't want to be a part of this kind of group? Don't you want to be a part of the kind of group that when you're a jerk, they respond like this to you? Isn't that the kind of family you want to be in, where when somebody acts out, they're not met with anger? I do. Look at this one line in their prayer, verse 29. Lord, look upon their threats. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. You see, they learned from Jesus that in a time of threat and suffering, you can rediscover in prayer the sovereign power of God who wins by letting your opponents win. And turning their victory over you into the kingdom's victory to move forward. That's the cross. See, they had a cruciform shape when they mapped their lives on the story of Scripture. They said, this is how the kingdom moves forward. By God transforming our opponents' victories over us into an unexpected progress. This rediscovery is the key to suffering in your life and for the church in society today. It's, it can be hard today. It can be difficult today to consistently and persistently say the one and only Creator is at work in our world through Jesus Christ and through Him, through the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of this tired, Evil infested, twisted, this world filled with injustice and brokenness and ugliness and deception, where the powerless keep getting the wrong end of the stick. That this world is going to be turned upside down because of Jesus' resurrection. And this is going to happen. And in chapter 4, verse 12, did you see it? And there is salvation. There is a way, there is no other way out of this broken world, there is no other escape hatch. There is no other solution to the incredible poverty that is crippling the brokenness of our our own lives, our own world. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that word saved is the same word for healed with the cripple. In other words, salvation is about every aspect of your life. The salvation of the kingdom isn't just about your moral state. It is about all of you, including your moral state. It's not just about your relationship with your creator. It's about that, but also your relationship with your very body and the creation itself. Why is it that this is so unpopular? within the politically correct climate of the last few generations in the Western world, to say that there's only one solution, and it's Jesus Christ. Why is the exclusivity of that so unpopular? People say this is arrogant. It's triumphalistic. And it definitely can be if Christians use the name of Jesus to further their own power and prestige. But do you see here how the person saying it didn't use that as a power move? He used it as a humble move. This is, the, this is an exclusivism that doesn't produce triumphalism, but it produces humility. It produces kindness and joy and an, an incredible ability to suffer. For many years now in the, rest, in the Western world, The boot of triumphalism and exclusivity in a bad way has been on the other foot. It is is on the foot of the secularist and the relativist who have acted the part of the chief priest in our culture, who are protecting their own cherished temple of modernist thought within which they refuse any mention of resurrection, no naming of a name like Jesus. And so how do we respond To to the arrogance of secularism, bold confession, and humility. That's the response. Not an equal arrogance. And so when the church... When Christians, when those of us who have entered the kingdom, when we come to speak or write about Jesus, about his cross, about his resurrection, about the new life which can break chains and set people free, when we bear witness to this bold claim, there will be powers around us that will do their best to oppose us. This happens. You're sitting, teenagers, you're sitting at the lunch table to claim That the solution to all things is the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Professors? Businessmen? Have you ever been in a setting? Well, this is a hard thing to say or to own or to live out or to enact. So what do we do? Well, let's just do what they did in the book of Acts. In that moment when we're standing before friends or families or whomever is sitting in judgment over us, whether it's a political judgment or a social, in that moment we say with integrity, we are speaking for God. And what we say is true. We just say it. We just say it. And it will be costly. That's just part of the deal because that's how the kingdom has always moved forward. It has always moved forward through the cross. There is no other way because the kingdom is about a world upside down, and the only way to move this thing forward is through redemptive suffering. We, we do it. And then we read the Scriptures. Notice in the trial, they didn't have time to pray and go to the Scriptures. But then they did have time. And when they did, they read the Scriptures. We map out our situation firmly on the map of the Scriptural story. And then we pray for boldness and courage to keep going and for God's power. And we don't go looking for persecution. But when it comes, in whatever form it is, it certainly concentrates the mind, sends us back to the Scriptures, we cast ourselves on God's mercy and power, and we go forward. Let me wrap up with this. How does your life look as you stare into this story? Are you afraid? Are, are you afraid? Because believing in Jesus and the resurrection of the dead is, is so out of touch with the cool kids in our culture. If you are, immerse yourself in the church. Immerse yourself in the scriptures and pray. Pray for boldness. When you look in here, do you see your reflection in the rulers? Are you a cultured despiser, a cynic, a skeptic? Are you more in line with the power structures of secularism? Are you prejudiced against Jesus? Are you cynical of miracles? Are you committed to a modernist anti-supernaturalism? Can you be sure, if that's the case, can you be sure that your lack of belief in Jesus is not motivated by a prejudice and a desire for self-protection? Now, I'm not saying that everybody who rejects the Christian claim is motivated by prejudice and a desire for self-protection. Disbelief is a very complicated thing. It's a whole spectrum of reasons. But I'm saying let's be honest with this story. or Can you be sure that your particular disbelief, skepticism, cynicism is not motivated by what motivated these particular resistors. Now, I know, I know, I know that that's not what's behind everyone's disbelief, but in the interest of authenticity and honesty, if you're a person who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead, perhaps in the the next few days, you can find it, some time to reflect on the profound capacity for self-deception that we all have. And you can try to say, well, is that why I don't buy this? The good news, look, if you don't believe it and you're interested in this, I'd love to talk to you. You know, my email's on the back of the worship guide. Um, It's not back there so you can email me critique of my sermon. It's only for positive. It's only for, like, good feedback, you know. Let's have coffee. Let's have lunch. If you don't believe this stuff, let's talk about it. Because if it is true, who wouldn't want it? The good news is God is patient. He's more patient than you're stubborn. He is merciful. He is love to the core of his being. Let's pray.